Welcome to Cyberspectives. Cyberspectives is a regular podcast produced by the Hoover Institution in conjunction with the Stanford Cyber Policy Program. Cyberspectives provides insights and analysis on the technology, policy, and legal issues associated with ensuring cybersecurity in an increasingly complex technology environment. We're very fortunate today to have Alex Stamos as our guest. Alex is currently an adjunct professor at Stanford's Freeman Spogli Institute, as well as a William J. Perry Center Fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford and a visiting scholar at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Alex recently joined Stanford, and prior to uh, joining Stanford, he was the Chief Security Officer uh, for Facebook, and in that role, he led a team of engineers, researchers, and analysts charged with understanding and mitigating information security risks to the company and uh, risks as well to the two and a half billion people who use Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. Prior to that, uh, Alex was Chief Information Security Officer uh, at Yahoo, uh, and earlier than that, he uh, founded a company which was acquired, uh, and he has a Bachelor of Science degree in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science from UC Berkeley. So uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, John. My first question is, uh, prior to Stanford, as I mentioned, you were the chief security officer for Facebook, a company with just uh, uh, you know, in the billions in terms of the numbers of people using its services. That's a, an incomprehensible responsibility. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the scale of the challenges involved and the classes of security threats uh, that you had to address uh, while in that position? It is a big responsibility, and, it, and when you're you're in a position like that, it's it's easy to forget uh, and you have to remind yourself why you're doing the work. So th- there's really two classes of risk that the security team at Facebook works on. The, the first is the traditional information security risk. So those, those are the risks of people breaking into Facebook's corporate network, breaking into the production network, finding flaws in the products Facebook ships with the goal of stealing data, affecting data, perhaps attacking individuals or in some cases stealing money or intellectual property from the company. So that's kind of the traditional CISO role. But the security and safety teams there have another really important role, which is understanding how Facebook's products, which as you said, have something like 2.5 billion people using them, how those products can be misused to cause harm. And that's a, a much more open ended and therefore difficult set of challenges uh, that have to be tackled. You know, it's a, it's become a, a, a kind of a stereotype to say something like this, but you do have to create a situation where security and safety becomes everybody's problem. Um, and, you know, a lot of people say that, but that, that really does have to be true at an organization like one of the large tech platforms because the decisions that are actually having real impact on these issues are often made well early in the production life cycle and kind of the thinking through what products are going to be built and what are they going to do. And so the the best way to address these issues is you can have a central security team that provides oversight and guidance and support. But really what you need to do is build security and safety capabilities and knowledge uh, and responsibility throughout the organization. And, and that's something that you know happened before I got there and, and was a big focus of, of my three years at Facebook uh, was the ways that we could, from the central security team, uh, support the creation of those capabilities throughout throughout the company. And you've hit upon what's one of the 
the really difficult balancing acts that we have to think about when you think of the organizational design and, and the risks inherent in having these large companies is you're totally right. A, a company like Facebook is a huge target, but you also do get the economies of scale where you can have a relatively small number of people come up with, with protections that then uh, have very little marginal difficulty in, in, in applying them, right? So if you build one secure framework to build a product, when you go from a billion users to two billion users, the amount of work necessary to do that product security uh, work does not change. Uh, and, and those economies of scale can be positive. And, and you do see that a bit, both in the big tech platforms, but also in the enterprise space with the use of cloud computing, that uh, the one of the you know only positive stories around enterprise security over the last five years has been a significant move for standardized IT workloads to be pushed into... Uh, the cloud, uh, and to, to get the benefit of kind of collective defense and having the world's best experts in those security issues defending many, many customers at once. And, and you do get some of that benefit from the big companies, and, and you can see that in some of the work we did around misinformation, disinformation, around child safety, uh, around it, you know the use of social media by terrorists for both recruiting and for incitement. In all those situations, the big companies have the ability to, to build specialized teams with expertise. Uh, and again, the, the application of that expertise across 1 billion or 2 billion or 2.5 billion users, the marginal difficulty of that does not increase. Whereas if you broke those platforms up into 10 or 20 smaller platforms, none of the individual groups would now have the ability to do that. And, and we see that with kind of the trickle-down effects into the Pinterests and the Reddits uh, and a bunch of other important companies that don't have the ability to have things like dedicated counterterrorism teams or, or dedicated uh, teams working on disinformation and election security. It's extremely hard to build secure software that provides a useful service in the presence of a skilled adversary. That is just a spectacularly difficult thing and something that uh, software engineering has not done a good job, honestly, of, of dealing with. Um, and so, uh, you know, the companies at that size, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazons face the same problems as everybody of, of trying to uh, train your engineers, give them good frameworks, find flaws quickly and get them patched quickly. You know, there's no magic solution here other than kind of continuously trying to invest in uh, building a good baseline and reducing the number of mistakes that, that uh, individual engineers can make. But one of the advantages you get at a Facebook or a Google, uh, perhaps at an Amazon as well, is that you, you get to, one, start from scratch, right? So these companies did not exist 20 years ago. They, unlike, say, a Microsoft or a Yahoo, they do not have to build upon software decisions that were made in the 1990s. Um, but the, the other benefit is when you're when you're running a small number of incredibly large services, you can build all those services off of a shared code base and on shared infrastructure. You know, this is one of the things I learned from being at a Yahoo versus a Facebook of seeing uh, how web architectures were designed in the late 90s, early 2000s versus a much more modern architecture. Uh, that in the modern way of, of, you know, even if you're running millions and millions of machines, doing something like applying a patch uh, or, or, or updating software, that kind of work can be made in an automated and, and repeatable fashion as long as you think thoughtfully ahead of time of what your design is and you keep things very, very uniform. And so there, you know, all of these companies that have that operate a billion user scale, 
they're able to do so because they have really good controls around no special Snowflake servers, no special so Snowflake services. Software is all built to a really specific spec. And, and that gives you a, a huge amount of leverage so that when, when you do have to fix something, you can fix it quickly across a huge network uh, w without a, a, a large number of people. Cybersecurity is pretty much a daily feature of the news these days. News stories tend to focus on major breaches, which are, of course, a problem, but they aren't the only problem. What are some examples of cybersecurity issues that we don't read about as much in the news, but that you think are important? So I think one of the, the big challenges we have in security is these big breaches are important, and we do need to talk about them. But the everyday insecurity people are facing, the everyday difficulties normal people face in utilizing the technology that's been built in their lives and to do so safely is something we don't talk about. And and that's really unfortunate because it, it is important when 50 million, 100 million, 200 million accounts are stolen or taken over. But every single day, millions of people have their electronic lives turned upside down, sometimes with really negative consequences, like the, the loss of a huge amount of their life savings. And that is something that we never talk about. You know, the number one source of account takeover in the world is almost certainly the reuse of passwords, the fact that people reuse passwords over and over again. And it's because the password paradigm, which, you know, as you well know, comes out of like 1970s timeshare architectures, the password paradigm is completely inappropriate for, for 2018. But we still do it because just like nobody used to get fired for buying IBM, nobody gets fired for putting a password into a web form. Uh, and we've, we've kind of collectively accepted the fact that it's a horrible type of authentication and has huge downsides. Uh, but because everybody does it, it's, it's not a scandal that you use it. And so as a result, when, you know, at, at Facebook, one of the things we had to deal with is the fact that people reuse their Facebook passwords everywhere. Those passwords get stolen. Uh, and the company had to build a risk-based authentication system that catches something between half a million to a million logins per day where the bad guys come in with the correct username and password. And we're only seeing the ones who came to Facebook. Like if you look at those people, it, almost by definition, a huge chunk of their lives were now being taken over, right? Their bank accounts, their, uh, you know, all of their other social media accounts, their email accounts. And so you can talk about, yes, there was a loss of, you know, 10 million accounts today. That's a couple of weeks of account takeovers just on one of the big services, right? Um, and, and we don't talk about that. And we just kind of internalize the idea that that's an acceptable thing. And, and the truth is, is for any, you know, person who works in security, who's been asked by individuals, hey, can you help me you know, uh, set up my stuff securely. It's incredibly difficult. Uh, it isn't, you know, we're making it way too hard for somebody to buy a phone, buy a computer, use 20 or 30 services and to do so in a secure and safe manner that they don't have to constantly be on their t tippy toes. And, and that's just kind of ridiculous, but it's, it's something we don't talk about because we just talk about the breach of the day. Um, because that, you know, that is sexier and it's, we like to talk about the, the high-end attacks and the nation-state adversaries. But the truth is, it's just the status quo of technology safety that people use every day is incredibly poor. The issue of social media as a means for people outside the United States to try to influence elections has been a major topic of discussion in recent years. What are some of the steps we can take to address this challenge in the future? So the, the social media piece is really part of, if, if you look at the 2016 election, there are kind of three areas of concern that we need to have. The first is the creation of disinformation that exists completely within social media. And that's what there's been a lot of focus on. Uh, in the case of Russia, a lot of that has come out of the Internet Research Agency and, and a variety of other 
private organizations in Russia organized under a big umbrella project for which we now know much more than we did just a year ago based upon indictments from the special prosecutor and, and from uh, various U.S. attorneys. The second category of misinformation is, is the hack and leak work, which is really less about uh, spreading things that aren't true and more about controlling the flow of narratives. Uh, and that's the work that GRU did in 2016, where they broke into DNC, broke into John Podesta's emails, and then were able to use stolen emails to control the press narrative in the last couple of months of the election and, and turn it towards the idea that Hillary had rigged uh, the Democratic primary. And then the third category is direct attacks against election infrastructure, of which there's some hints of interest by the Russians in 2016, but no uh, definite use of that uh, to cause any damage. The first category is mostly the responsibility of social media platforms. And I think a lot of the protections that have been put in place have been, have been good. I think the most important thing that's happened is the creation of ad transparency. Whether or not there's foreign interference, we're, we're hurtling towards this future where uh, campaigns and parties represent themselves completely differently to every single voter online. And, and we just don't want our electorate to be chopped into tinier and tinier little micro-targeted segments. When you talk about like the Cambridge Analytica scandal, part of it is the theft of information from Facebook APIs. But the big part of the scandal that hasn't been addressed has been the fact that there's a, a huge market for services like Cambridge Analytica's because as, as a, a candidate, you can go buy these huge databases and use it to target 15, 20, 30 people at once. And we really, that is something that has not been addressed enough. We have transparency, but we don't have limits around the targeting yet. And I think that's something we got to fix. There's some, there's some kind of, there's got to be a trade-off here where at a certain group size, you're going to still have to be honest to who you, you are. And there's also the possibility or the likelihood, the larger the group is, that one of the people you target is not a super aggressive supporter of you or does not completely agree with what you said. And therefore, if you push a, me push a message to them that is radical or extreme or a lie, it will get called out, right? And so, you know, when, it, when somebody runs a TV ad, they're speaking to tens of thousands of people and they can't control who these people are. So they can, they have to take responsibility for what they say. If you run an ad to a hundred people, uh, you know, the odds of you getting called out on it used to be pretty low. Now there is transparency from, from Google and Facebook, but there isn't from the thousands of other companies that that are part of the ad ecosystem. And I think that is where we can have some reasonable legislation is to take the standards that have been self-imposed by the largest companies and make them part of a, a legal standard uh, that is applied across at least the direct uh, campaign contribution funded advertising by the, the candidates and the campaigns. It seems that every time there's a major breach announced, there are the predictable calls for greater government regulation. Do you think that more regulation at the federal level is the right approach uh, in relation to cybersecurity? And if so, uh, what type of regulation do you think is needed? This is an area where I'm personally very torn because first off, as somebody who has been a incident responder, I have never dealt with a security emergency where I thought to myself, man, all I really need is more lawyers in this room, right? Like if, if I had five lawyers sitting here looking over my shoulder, I, I feel like this, this would be going way better. Um, and so there... You know, I, I am concerned about the idea of cybersecurity regulation that is both overly intrusive and overly um, specific. You know, that the probably most successful, and I'm air quoting here, 
regulatory framework in the world in cybersecurity is the PCI DSS, the Payment Card Industry Digital Security Standards, the standards that everybody has to follow to take credit cards. And they have been successful in raising the bar for small to medium-sized businesses that otherwise would not have good security. But every company that's ever had 150 million credit cards stolen was certified at the highest level of PCI. Uh, and it's because you know, when you're doing security, you're not building a bridge to spec. You're not building a house that needs to stand up to an earthquake. You're playing chess. And nobody ever became a great chess player by following a step-by-step -step instructions of exactly how they're supposed to play chess. And, and so I think we need to, if we're going to have legislation, it's going to have to give people the flexibility to put in place security protections that are appropriate for them, appropriate for their network, and that are able to move much more quickly than regulation does. The flip side is that is the lack of regulation in the United States has left the door open for other countries and jurisdictions to step in in a way that I think is very harmful to American businesses. And that is especially around privacy regulation that we've now ended up, because there is no functional federal privacy law in the United States, we first ended up with the EU passing the GDPR, which is a law that I agree with in principle, but in practice, I think has a lot of negative side effects that haven't been thought through. And now we even have California passing their own privacy law. And so I think just there's the theoretical of what you might want, uh, you know, from a legal framework. And then there's a the practicality of if you have nothing, then that leaves the door open for people who aren't really thinking about uh, balancing a lot of equities to, to pass these rules. Uh, and so I think realistically, we need probably laws to both provide for some level of liability and responsibility for companies to protect themselves, but to encourage them to do so through best practices that come from industry groups and ISACs and other kinds of self-regulatory organizations ISACs being uh, the the ISACs and ISAOs are kind of the self-defense organizations that are put together by individual industries. So the financial services industry has one, the electrical grid has one. So you can have these private groups that that come up with best practices and that uh, serve as information sharing hubs. Uh, you want to encourage that kind of behavior and not have here is the 700 page document of exactly how you're supposed to do security. Um, that 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 is not a, a good way of doing it. And I, I think we need to have a, a federal override privacy law so we don't end up with 50 different privacy laws. Um, and we're going to need a, a federal privacy regulator that is competent to turn those rules into uh, real decisions that apply to, to modern technology. Uh, and, and that's the really the only way that I think we can keep uh, American companies competitive in a, in a situation where other places like Europe are using privacy law as a part of their competition strategy, not just uh, to, to protect the privacy of individuals. What are a few of the biggest types of cybersecurity challenges we're going to face in the next several years? So I think I'll, I'll talk about biggest challenges for enterprises and then for, for consumers. For, for enterprises, the, the key problem is there's just not enough talented defenders to go around. That is the key problem, is that if you look at the Fortune 500, the number of companies that have large, diversified security teams, these are teams that can reverse engineer malware, that can find command and control channels on a big, complicated network, that have the ability to use the really high-end products that you see sold at an RSA or Black Hat. The number of companies that have those kinds of teams is probably only 100 to 150 of them, right? The rest are doing the best they can, but are often doing security in the same way companies did in the 2007, 2008. And the truth is, is 
in today's environment, if you go up against an adversary that is uh, state-sponsored, that has some kind of you know uh, professional uh, financial goal, that is working on behalf of one of your overseas competitors, you, you have to be playing at that level if if you want to hold up. And so I think the the biggest challenge we'll continue to see on the enterprise side is there's all kinds of innovation in product, but that innovation in product does not solve the fundamental issue of not enough people who are qualified doing the work. And on consumer side, I, I think the explosion of basically Linux being embedded into every part of your life, that your light switch, your toaster, your coffee pot are all connected to networks, that per, that poses both a, a serious uh, cybersecurity risk and a serious privacy risk. And, and we're not doing a good job as a society of thinking about what are the guidelines and guardrails do we want to have around technology if, if we're going to make every every device a smart device, the, the Internet of Things, as people talk about. Um, that That's going to get harder and harder for folks uh, as the they you know, right now, if you want to go buy a smart ther uh, thermostat, that's a decision you can make. In a couple of years, you won't have the option to buy one that's not smart, and that doesn't every single thing that will run without Wi-Fi. And I think that's going to be a huge step change when you go from these being products that are bought by enthusiasts to being the default, uh, and therefore the the people who are deploying them not thinking about security when they do so. As Internet of Things, IoT devices proliferate in the coming years, and as we get uh, much faster networks through the rollout of 5G, uh, the complexity and size of digital networks are going to dramatically increase. How prepared do you think we are to ensure cybersecurity in, in light of these changes? It's going to be tough, and you're right with, with 5G. Again, you know, the rollout of IoT devices where you have to take an intentional step to hook them up to a wireless network, at least that provides the possibility that somebody is thinking a little bit about security when they set them up. When these devices start getting born with 20 cent 5G chips uh, with, uh, you know, contracts already existing, you know, um, without any uh, proactive moves having to be taken uh, to put them on the internet, that is going to be a, a, a humongous change for people. And, you know, again, when we get back to regulation, I feel like this is a place where self-regulatory standards of the UL type that are backed by insurance companies and then backed by perhaps uh, uh, know your information, pro-consumer uh, in, uh, information laws is going to be important. Uh, because right now, when you, if you go to Home Depot and you buy something that's considered an IoT device, you don't know how long is that product going to be patched for? Does it patch itself? What kind of maintenance are you going to have to provide? How long will it be uh, supported by the manufacturer? Those are the kinds of things that I think we can have good standards that are tested by industry self-regulatory groups like like UL Labs, uh, but then that that is backed up by uh, a legal force uh, and liability that highly encourages people not to sell uh, the cheap crap that, that doesn't have any protection. So I think coming up with those basic baselines and decisions now before a billion a billion of these devices are deployed is going to be really critical because going back and retrofitting that is going to be basically impossible. Uh, and I think on IoT devices, we're, we're just going to have to uh, approach them from a safety perspective that the, the way we think about security on, on personal computers and to a, some extent even on phones is that individuals are responsible for not making mistakes. So if, if you use your computer, your Mac or your Windows box, you're not supposed to download malware. You're not supposed to click on bad links. You have to be careful 
about what you type into uh, a screen after you click on an email. We can't think that way with IoT. We're going to have to build these systems so that we assume that whoever's using them does not have any specialized training and is not being paranoid. Uh, and and that building that kind of thinking into industries where really it's a race to the bottom on price is going to be extremely hard. And the final question is, uh, are you in general uh, uh, optimistic or pessimistic regarding the future in the sense that you know the the glass half full argument is that uh, we have many years of collective experience uh, in society uh, fighting cyber threats and that presumably we've built up a lot of capability in that area and, and should be well prepared to do so. The glass half empty view is that uh, the complexity of networks and systems is just getting uh, you know, even more complex than before and the capability of people who would commit cyber attacks is also increasing and so there's also cause to be concerned. I guess what do you, when you look at the future, do you see uh, this problem getting worse, better, a mix of both? Any thoughts on that? So, I mean, there are positive trends. I think in the enterprise space, the move towards cloud computing has been a hugely positive trend. The fact that if you start a company today, you can run all of it in the cloud without having any on-prem infrastructure that you're responsible for supporting and getting the benefit of that team at Microsoft, that team at Salesforce, that team at Google doing work to secure you behind the scenes. That is a huge benefit. Now, not everybody utilizes that benefit, but the fact that you can build an enterprise with that in mind, that kind of security architecture, I think could be a very positive thing. On the consumer side, I think there's something positive, which is the move to mobile devices has taken us away from individuals having full-fledged computing devices over which they have complete control and putting them into closed ecosystems. That has a lot of really difficult issues to deal with from a privacy perspective and from a, a consumer choice perspective, but it is undoubtedly a positive thing to say this device is under is the responsibility of one company to keep it secure and, and they are on the hook for doing so. And, and when people, people who live completely mobile lifestyles of they have their iPhone and perhaps they have a Chromebook uh, are much more secure than, than your average PC user 10 years ago. So I, I do think there are positive trends, uh, but overall as you know, we continue to build software into our lives well before software engineering uh, has earn the trust necessary to do so, right? It is still a very young field and it is a field that does not understand how do you build truly dependent, uh, dependable and safe systems. Uh, and the fact that every part of our lives is now being revolutionized by incredibly complex uh, software, I think will, means that we will continue to have a move towards overall insecurity and, and safety issues. Uh, and, and that is why guys like you and me will continue to have jobs. You know, of all the parts of computer science, security is the only part that gets worse every year. Um, and so I do think it's important for us in academia uh, to continue to educate the new, the next generation and, and to try to keep people nimble and fast on, on thinking about these issues and, and, and increase the size of the workforce because we just don't have enough good people doing this kind of work. So again, thank you very much for uh, being on the program and uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thanks, John. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts and ideas from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org.